Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Our topic today is the American Heart Association and its current objectives. The American Heart Association or the AHA, was founded in 1924 by six cardiologists and is now the nation's oldest and largest voluntary organization dedicated to fighting heart disease and stroke. There are currently more than 33 million volunteers and supporters across the nation, one of which is today's guest. Please welcome Dr. Dan Cox, who is the board president of the Utah chapter of the AHA. So Dr. Cox, could you please give me a quick rundown of your career path? How long have you been involved with the American Heart Association? Yes, so my career path has been a long path to get to where I am today, which has included my medical school training, specialty and subspecialty fellowship training. I've also been a volunteer for the American Heart Association now for roughly 13 years. I am also a member of the board of directors and then also the board president, as you mentioned, of the Utah chapter of the American Heart Association. I really got involved with the AHA many years ago when I was in training. I wanted to be more involved in local events And my initial chapter that I got involved with was very open to me being involved as just a member of the community, not specifically because of any of my medical background. Uh, And it really drove me to want to work for an organization and become involved with an organization that could really help me become more active, both for myself, my family, and my friends. And I've been helping with the events ever since that day. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You mentioned being inspired by the idea of wanting to do something for the community in your local area about fighting heart disease and stroke. Was there a moment or an incident where you decided this was what you wanted to do? This is what you wanted to spend your time on? Not necessarily in that there wasn't a specific inciting event, but just realizing how important cardiovascular health is in our community, both for, again, myself, for my family, for my friends. And there's just such a high number of people out there who don't know that they have underlying cardiovascular disease, including high blood pressure, cholesterol, and other things that can increase your risk of stroke and heart attacks. And just by becoming involved with the organization, it really just stirred my interest in in an organization that has been around for a long time, like you had mentioned, in an organization where I could also really benefit both myself, but also my community in being involved. Right. So what kind of community-based projects is the AHA working on right now, and how have they adapted things in light of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, great question in that with the current COVID pandemic, it has put a lot of stress on nonprofit organizations, but also other organizations around the country and around the world. Our local organization has really started to put an emphasis on continuing our mission and shifting to more of a virtual environment going online, using a lot of the online resources to continue to share resources to our community. Now, in the setting of all that, we still continue to train local providers with BLS or basic life support, ACLS, PALS. We're really emphasizing the campaigns of knowing your numbers, which includes just knowing where your blood pressure and your cholesterol numbers are at. 
We also continue to support local community centers and medical providers to really ensure that they have the necessary equipment that's available to provide necessary care. And then very importantly, we continue to work with our local but also our national legislature to work on campaigns that have included diabetes management, access to health care, and then the vaping and tobacco cessation crisis that we're also working to minimize the effects of. Can you talk more about the vaping epidemic? Why is it so important for people to not vape? So we know the long-term health effects of tobacco use, smoking, um, different types of tobacco products that have been available for years. And there's been a big shift, as a lot of people are aware in the news lately, in regards to the vaping products. That's really not only hitting our adult population, but also our, our kids and our teenage populations. And that we know that just tobacco products in general, they carry an increased risk of lung disease, including lung cancers, asthma, but also risks of abnormal heart rhythms, elevated blood pressures, heart attacks, and strokes. And we're starting to see these same effects with the vaping products. And it's really challenging because there are thousands of types of vaping products that are out there and available, and we're still learning a lot about them. But in the studies that have been coming out over the last few years, we're seeing a lot of these long-term effects occurring in a shorter time and span, including abnormal heart rhythms, heart attacks, and strokes associated with these products. So it's not just lung problems that you can develop from vaping. It sounds like it's cardio issues as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And that's something that we see on a daily basis in our hospital systems, both as an inpatient as well as our outpatients that we see. And that patients who utilize these products are coming in with abnormal heart rhythms, with histories of prior heart attacks and now having recurrent heart attacks, patients coming with strokes after using these products. So we're really working with our legislatures to try to minimize use, especially in our adolescent population, but also in the adult population, too. And are there any sort of legislative efforts going on to regulate what's going into vaping products? Because I know that there are laws of what can and can't go into cigarettes, but vaping, since it's so new, it seems pretty thrown together, right? You can have everything and anything inside a vape cartridge. In a lot of ways, yes, in that there, the, a lot of the local as well as national legislatures have made some progress on there. And just a personal and opinion that's shared by the American Heart Association is there's still a lot of progress that can be made because there are thousands of vaping products that get put into different types of solutions. Some of these were initially designed as additives for foods. And now that you're vaping it and it's essentially kind of being burned and then inhaled into the lungs, you still don't know what a lot of those long-term effects are going to be. A lot of products do have nicotine in them as well. And we know long-term effects of nicotine can increase risk of heart attack, stroke, as well as abnormal heart rhythms. So that's where, yes, like you were saying, there's so many products that are available out there. It's really difficult to know exactly what are in all of them. To go back to talking about COVID-19, even though everyone is sick of talking about it, I'm sick of talking about it, I'm sick of hearing about it, I'm sick of writing about it. It is nevertheless something that has altered the way in which we live, right? And so going back to the idea of not being able to teach people in-person BLS, in-person CPR, there has been some hesitation from bystanders to give mouth-to-mouth ventilations because of COVID-19 and how it's transmitted. How would you advise dispatchers who are coaching a caller through CPR, but the person 
doesn't really know the patient and is worried about giving them mouth-to-mouth ventilations, is compressions-only CPR still effective? It definitely is, yes. And that over the course of really the last couple of decades, more and more studies have continued to show that if a, a bystander is not knowledgeable in regard to standard BLS training and or they may not feel comfortable providing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation that many bystanders would not perform CPR. And that utilizing hands-only CPR can be very effective in keeping the blood circulating until trained providers can arrive or they can get to a medical facility. So we highly emphasize that even if you don't feel comfortable doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, that hands-only CPR can be very effective. Now, it is very important to know how to perform hands-only CPR as well. And that's, again, where these virtual types of events can be really beneficial and that pretty much everybody has access to a phone or to a computer. And you can go online and learn yourself, watch videos on how to perform hands-only CPR, knowing how to do it effectively. And as a dispatcher, just being able to describe how to do it effectively is extremely important. Exactly. And being able to do it yourself makes it easier to describe to other people as far as like hand placement on the chest and the rhythm. Absolutely. Yeah. So how to position yourself next to the person if they're unresponsive, how to position your hands both together as well as on the chest, how to perform the chest compression, usually about two inches, if not slightly deeper on the chest and having that knowledge ahead of time, as well as the rate and trying to do it a hundred times a minute. And that's where it's really important to know how fast that really is. Also, if you have the ability to do so, which is, again, very challenging to do in the time of COVID, is going to local events where they do BLS training or different types of hands-only CPR training, where you can work on a dummy in regard to pushing yourself, feeling what a chest compression would be like on a dummy situation where you're not going to injure or hurt somebody. And having that practice ahead of time can be very vital in an emergency situation. Right, because you don't want compressions to be too deep, right, where you, you know, break something, but also you don't want them to be too shallow that they're not actually pumping the blood through the body. Absolutely, yes. And also the rate of compressions as well, knowing they should be about 100 times a minute. And that is something that's a little bit challenging for some people to think about is how fast is that really? And so there's always the reference that's given the BG song, Staying Alive. The rhythm, if you listen to that song, is about 100 beats per minute. If you have the potential to sing that or hum that song uh, while you're practicing, it gives you a sense of how fast that should be, about 100 times per minute. For sure. And for dispatchers that use the medical priority dispatch system, there's a a counter on the computer that lets them know exactly how many compressions the caller should be doing a minute and has them count out loud with the caller so that they get those 100 compressions a minute. Absolutely. Yeah. And having that resource is extremely vital. You were mentioning just to keep the blood flowing and the circulation occurring throughout the body until they can be transported to a medical facility. So in addition to getting CPR training for themselves, what other advice do you have for dispatchers in regard to cardiac arrest or stroke treatment? That is a a difficult thing because I don't want to feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but knowing what the protocols are, knowing what the guidelines are, and, and having the availability to recognize and describe what symptoms may be described by a bystander and trying to explain to them of things that they should be aware of. Knowing that time is extremely important and that getting them to a facility where they can be treated is going to be of utmost importance. 
And so knowing the signs and symptoms to be aware of both for strokes, heart attacks, and other cardiovascular events, noting that if someone is unresponsive, how to describe the way to administer a CPR and life-saving support, and then getting the appropriate help to them, and then getting them transported to the appropriate facility. Um, but all that comes together, and as you're well aware, dispatchers are such an important vital part of the medical team to make sure that we're saving lives and keeping our communities safe. And one of the things to note is that a caller is not always going to use medical terminology when someone is having a cardiac arrest or a stroke, right? They're not always going to say the exact words that are on the protocol. So maybe familiarize yourself with the way that a layperson who doesn't have a medical background would describe these events. Absolutely. And that's something that yeah we work with every day in the medical field is the same thing as if we're providing consent forms or other medical paperwork, just making sure that it's a level that the, the community is going to understand. And so, yes, yeah, so and knowing the simple terminology of how to describe what a chest compression would be and that that term may not be familiar to somebody or you know, some of the basic medical terminology, being able to simplify that as much as possible. Very important for our general community. So as the last question, what is one thing you'd like dispatchers to take away from this episode? Yeah, it's, it's a tough question to fully answer. Just knowing the importance of the American Heart Association and the division of the American Stroke Association that overlaps with all of us. Just knowing that working as a dispatcher, it can be extremely stressful and often a thankless job. And knowing that they are such a vital part of our medical response team caring for our community. And just knowing that we have these organizations and that that is a job that they work in, but also just really remembering to take care of themselves and their family's health. And that we are making changes to improve our own mental health, our own physical health, reducing our own cardiovascular risk is still greatly important. We know that about 80% of heart attacks and strokes can be prevented, and that's also for our medical providers as well. And just knowing where your numbers are is extremely important. That is fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Cox. As always, there will be relevant links in the show notes. And if you have any specific questions for us, go ahead and email us at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. And thank you so much, Dr. Cox. We look forward to talking to you again. Great. Yeah, thank you for your time as well. Thanks for listening to Dispatch In-Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch In-Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 